Hey, hey, it's the Planet LP Podcast. I'm Ted Asfragadu, and this is episode 69, which is a present past episode. I'm going to be talking about a book by an author who only goes by one name and fronts a band that only contains one letter and one number. If you haven't guessed by now, it's Bono, the singer and primary lyricist of U2. His book, Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story, was on my reading list since late last year, and I finally finished the book, and I wanted to devote a segment to a kind of review of Bono's book. The second segment has me digging into the audio archives to feature an interview I did with Jessica Harp. Jessica was one half of the country pop duo known as the Wreckers. The other half of that duo was Michelle Branch. They only had one studio album, and they released a live album shortly after that, before putting the Wreckers on ice so each member could pursue their solo endeavors. I'm featuring this interview, which admittedly is 14 years old, because while I like to think of myself as having wide and diverse tastes in music, there's one genre that's been difficult for me to get into, and that's country music. After re-listening to my conversation with Jessica, which includes clips from her then-new album, A Woman Needs, I realize that some of my reticence about country music as a genre comes from the dreaded listening with prejudice to a song or collection of songs. So this is my way, in 2009, of trying to broaden my musical horizons. As always, you can connect with Planet LP on many social media platforms, like Groupie. Groupie is great because it's a platform dedicated solely to sharing music via the app Spotify. The same is with Instagram. Instagram is pretty good with sharing music. You can follow us there. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Or you can connect directly with me via email. That's easy. Just go to ted at planetlp.com, type your little message in and send it off to me. And if you can, please spread the word about this podcast to your friends, family, coworkers, or acquaintances, especially if they're music fans. Subscribe, follow, or just listen to the podcast on apps like Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Spotify, Amazon Music, or if you don't do any podcasting apps, just go to planetlp.com. You can listen to episodes right there. And with that, let's get to the first segment, Bono Writes a Book. Like a lot of folks my age, the first time I heard U2's music was on MTV. The song was Gloria, and I thought the guitar riff was pretty, pretty cool. But also the lead singer, who had a lot of energy that seemed a bit different from the rock performers who came before him. Bono, to my teenage eyes and ears, had the charisma of a preacher, but not a preacher I had ever seen before. It was more like this guy was channeling the messianic spirit of Jesus Christ. I mean, the song was called Gloria, and it wasn't about a woman. Rather, it was a song partially sung in Latin. What rock band does that? Well, as the world would soon find out, that was U2's thing. They were a rock band who didn't hide their devotion to Christianity, but they weren't a Christian rock band. Does that make any sense? I guess it does if you follow this band roughly for the 40 years they've been together. A band that's never changed the original lineup since their first album, called Boy, that was released on October 20th, 1980. Like many bands, U2 had 
previous incarnations, they were known as Feedback from 1976 to 1977, then The Hype from 1977 to 1978, and then they became U2 from 78 onward. The only line of change was when David Evans, also known as The Edge, had his older brother in the band. His older brother's name is Richard, but he commonly went as Dick. He was in the band during the early years, but he departed when he went off to college. That left Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton, and U2 drummer Larry Mullins Jr. to carry on as a four-piece. It should be noted that Larry was the person who put the band together in high school. Now, flash forward to 2023. You two are still releasing albums, still touring, and still trying to be culturally relevant in their sixth decade on planet Earth. For many artists, this is a time to look back at a career, and that's exactly what Bono attempts to do in Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story. He's done tons of press to promote this book, but in an NPR interview from November 2022 with Rachel Martin, Bono does talk about the religious foundation of the band, a religious foundation that was kind of messy. At first, Adam was just like, oh, man. You know, he's like, he had just one thing in life, which was just four strings are better than six. He's a bass player, just wants to be in like the badass rock and roll band. And like, oh my God, he won't write songs about girls. He's writing songs, oh God. But he stood by me, you know, and stood by us um, in our devotion. Uh, as it, you know, I mean, could you imagine Ireland in the 70s? It's a civil war, all but a civil war. The country's dividing along sectarian lines. So I, I know, I was very suspicious and still am a little suspicious of... Religious people, I mean, religion is often a club. I mean, of course, um, a, an association, but it's often a club that people use to beat someone else over the head with. And we learned that. I learned that at a very early age in Ireland. The other thing that my teenagers picked up on listening to that song, Gloria, all those years ago, is that you too was creating anthems that were almost like hymns. Again, we'll go back to this NPR interview because that's exactly what Bono talks about, especially when it comes to the guitar player, The Edge. You write that a lot of U2's music, though, is grounded in the feeling, the emotion, even the structure of a hymn. Yeah, Edge's uh, his family were Welsh. If you've never heard crowds singing at a Welsh Irish rugby match. The stadium filled with song and they sing these huge hymns but they they sing them this it's just these, this enormous choral overpowering sound of the and the I should say the Welsh sort of sing as a crowd really really well and that hurts for me to say that as an <laughs> Irish rugby fan. It really hurts, but they sing, you know, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, the made to life that will support you evermore, you know. Wait, they sing that at the rugby match? Yeah, they sing bread of heaven. Wow. And it's in him, it's in edge, uh-huh. those fifths, those... And that's the feeling we've been looking for in our music. Yes, we like we want punk rock. We want it to be brutal. We want it to be 
tough-minded. We wanted to have big tunes, but the ecstatic music is is sort of part of who we are. Yes, it's clear that the members of U2 are religious without declaring a formal religious institution that they're affiliated with. But living one's religious ideals is something that's woven into the fabric of this book. Most of the middle and latter chapters of Surrender, Bono tends to chronicle his work in trying to help those in the African continent manage the AIDS crisis. And while this work is very important to him, I couldn't help but notice that the book became more of a reflection of the political leaders with whom Bono has had lasting relationships. And that includes folks like Barack Obama, but also members of the George W. Bush administration. As he says in the book, and this is from page 358, if you're reading along at home, the heading is My New Neighborhood, The Capital. I've always seen myself as a kind of salesman, selling songs, selling ideas, selling the band, and on my best day selling, well, hope. If we could get this Drop the Debt song on the charts, this was a different kind of hope, maybe for millions of people. In order to do this, though, I would have to join a new band while not getting booted out of the one I was already in booted out for double jobbing or moonlighting. I told myself this was part of our history as a band, that since 1982, the four of us had promised to see beyond ourselves to a world of other, more dire needs than a hit record, which, in fairness, we had also promised ourselves. Still, my usual certainties did not look so certain. I was about to make friends with people I'd always presumed were the enemy, and to fall out with people I thought would be friends. I was to discover that the left does not have a monopoly on compassion for people living in poverty, that there are compassionate conservatives just as affronted by this kind of inequality. Our drop-the-debt tent would need to be big enough not just for nuns and punks, for football moms and trade unionists, but for those on the right as well as those on the left. And with this strategy, we could double the size of our campaign and double the pressure on politicians. Whatever room I was in, I would remind myself that the success of U2 had me over-rewarded, over-regarded, and that I must not forget how much these people had given up, working long hours and living far from their families, trying to make the best of their lives and for their constituents. It is eye-opening to see the other side, not as the other, but more like brothers and sisters in a shared mission. That's heartening to those who feel that man's inhumanity to man seems to be on the ascent. But as a person who likes to read about current events and political and economic news, the long slog of getting big political power brokers to act is certainly interesting. However, as a music fan, the chapters chronicling these political and policy struggles could have been consolidated into far fewer ones. That's because the last third of Surrender felt like filler at times. What fans of the band want to know is more about what went into making some of their iconic songs. We do get some of that, but not enough. Indeed, Bono's three other bandmates, one of the pillars of what he loves in life, are somewhat absent or play a minor role in the narrative. And that's a shame because it would have been great to hear more about, well, Adam Clayton's struggle with alcohol, and he struggled with it. It was a struggle that meant 
at one point that you two had to get a substitute bass player in Australia when Clayton hit rock bottom and needed treatment for his addiction. Or what about The Edge? This is a guy who forged a unique sound that's all his own. So, for example, most can tell when Phil Collins is drumming on a record with that in the air tonight sound. Others know Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix or Mark Knopfler or Eric Clapton just by the tone of their guitar work. The Edge, he's not a flashy player, but his sound, it's unmistakable. Learning how he came up with these guitar parts for songs like I Will Follow or Zoo Station or Sort of Homecoming would have been really wonderful to read about from Bono's perspective. But we don't get much by way of the making of this or that U2 album, except for Pop. Regarded as U2's worst album, Bono has this to say about that record. And if you're reading along, it's on page 330 with the heading Pop, the sound of a balloon bursting. Following a rock band is like following a football team. Paul McGinnis, that's U2's manager, usually has a theory. And in 1997, this is his theory. You want your team to win trophies, but in music, unlike football, neither artist nor fan will admit it. The Pink Floyd fan says, give us new music. We don't want to hear Dark Side of the Moon again. Really? The Pink Floyd fan loves Dark Side of the Moon. That's the record that stays on the charts for them. You can't force everyone to love your experiments. Critically and commercially, we've been at the top since the Joshua Tree. But now we might be running out of road. Maybe these new songs will find their life played live. Maybe Pop Mart, the tour, will turn things around. Maybe not. Barbara Skydell, our agent in America, had so carefully minded us since we signed with the great promoter impresario Frank Barcelona, is worried that the world has moved on. People don't get our pop art signaling. This is a time for grunge, the Seattle sound. Everyone's wearing plaid shirts and torn jeans and making earnest rock while you two are dressing up in muscle shirts and playing under a McDonald's arch. People don't get it. The radio's not playing the record. The band might be in for a big fall. Look, at all the genius that was Peter Frampton, the scale of his success was only matched by the backlash. But still, the tour. Pop Mart could change the narrative, couldn't it? If we could deliver on the road, we could turn things around. And the idea for the tour is bold. Paying homage to pop art, performing alongside fruit sculptures like those of Oldensburg or huge animation paintings by Roy Lichtenstein or Keith Haring. And what's more, because the capital of pop is surely Las Vegas, we will open the tour in Las Vegas. How great is that? Hmm, not quite as great as anticipated. The only place in the world where Pop Mart, the show, is going to look normal is in the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. For all our supersized art, this is a city that can outrun any rival for larger-than-life irony. This is the capital of pastiche. Our Pop Mart will be parked right next to the pyramids. The one city where our production will look humdrum, and it does. And we hadn't had time to rehearse properly. Did I mention that? And our daughter, Jordan, traveling with us, gets bitten by a dog on the day of the opening. And if you're allergic to the desert weed, the tumbleweed variety, which I am, 
This is one of the few places in the world where you might lose your voice, which I do. And everyone turns up for our big opening night and we can't quite play our new songs. It's a kind of humiliation and that's just the start of it. This is more of what I wanted from this book. And as a fan of the band, these are the stories that fans often crave, stories that fill in the narrative with honest appraisals of what songs or albums or even tours worked or didn't work. But it's also the biographical stuff that's really interesting, too. His years growing up at 10 Cedarwood Road, his best friend, Derek Rowan, who had the nickname Guji. Guji is the guy who gave Bono his nickname, Bonovox, which, as we find out in the pages, is not Latin for strong voice, but rather the name of a hearing aid shop in Dublin. Guji called him Bonovox of O'Connell Street, or then Bon Marie, and then Bono. And he did have a weird nickname of Steinvetch von Heischen for a while. That's a good one. And, well, Bono didn't think so, but I find it funny. And it was Bono who gave Guji his nickname because he said that's what his head looked like. Guji. It looked like a Guji. I don't know what a Guji is, but you look at Derek Rowan and you think, okay, I guess he does have a Guji kind of head. There's more history that's kind of fascinating. The fact that Guji's younger brother, Peter, is also on the cover of U2's album's Boy, War, and The Best Of. There's also Andy Rowan, another brother of Guji's, who's the subject of three U2 songs, Bad, Running to Stand Still, and Raised by Wolves. Poor Andy, he was nicknamed by Guji as Guck Pants Delaney, because when he was two years old, I guess he had a lot of accidents in his diapers, and it was kind of like, ugh, Guck Pants. All those earlier recollections are fascinating to me. The fact that his mother had an aneurysm the day of her father's funeral, falling in love with Alison Stewart, who is now Bono's wife of over 40 years and whom he dedicates the book to. And it's clear that he is absolutely in love with his wife. This is the love of his life. And she shows up here and there throughout the story to kind of knit it together as this, well, it is a love letter to Allie. This book is. He also chronicles his difficult relationship with his father, who always chided Bono by saying, you're a baritone who thinks he's a tenor. And what that translates to is basically a guy who tries to punch above his weight. His deeply held religious views are also very much front and center in this book. The lean years of trying to get you two off the ground, his own struggles with his health and his Messiah complex. It's all very well written and engaging very early on. But as I said, it's that latter half that felt like filler. So is this book worth the price of admission for you two fans? Yes, absolutely. Buy this book. You will learn things about their career that probably hasn't been told before. It's a shame, at least for me, that there isn't more of that. Perhaps that's the topic of Bono's next book. Or so we can hope. Well, in the second segment, it's one from the archives. My interview with Jessica Harp that I did for Popdose back in 2009. Hey, it's Ted Asfogadu, and this is the Popdose interview with Jessica Harp. Jessica Harp is one of those fortunate individuals to know exactly what she wants. From an early age, she knew she wanted to be a singer and a country singer at that. She partnered with Michelle Branch in 2005 to form The Wreckers and released Stand Still, Look Pretty in 2006. 
The album did really well for the duo, with a number one single and a Grammy nomination. It looked like it was going to be a long-term partnership until it was announced the Wreckers were on hiatus. Now Jessica has a solo album entitled A Woman Needs, and she's here for a Pop Dose interview. Hey Jessica, how's it going? I'm doing wonderful. Now, you said that many of the songs the Wreckers did were sad, and you wanted to perform songs that got people dancing. Well, it sounds like you got your wish with the new single, Boy Like Me. I hope so. (laughs) I I think it's pretty sassy. I think that's probably why I I picked it to be the first single. I mean, I would never knock the Wreckers album. I'm so proud of that record and always will be, but it was a very sad record for the most part, so... When I went into the studio to make this record, I, I was thinking about how is this record going to come across live? Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it going to be all sad? Or, or are there going to be plenty of songs where people can get up and dance and just have a good time? And the same for myself. And so that's the goal I was going for when making the record. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the word sassy, because that was the, that was the <laughs> word that came to mind when I saw the video. And also heard the song. It's uh, like I was telling you before we started the recording of this uh, this podcast that I work in adult contemporary radio, where yes. it it sounds like a song that could easily cross over to adult contemporary. Now is that well, that the... would be absolutely amazing <laughs> <laughs> for any country artist to cross it. your fan base is always a good thing. I think a lot of the time country kind of gets a bad rap, so any artist who crosses over, I think that's just opening maybe more people's eyes to country music, mm-hmm. which is a great thing. There's a, there's a radio station in San Francisco called The Wolf where the DJs don't sound country, and what I mean by that, they don't really affect a, a country twang. They sound, mm-hmm. like, they sound like the top 40 DJs of old. You know, right. so they're really kind of high energy, and they just happen to play country music. So, I think with you know radio stations like The Wolf, and maybe the single that you're doing here with uh, with Boy Like Me, that maybe you know the the country music is going through a, a bit of a renaissance or a bit of a change in many ways. I mean, there's certainly bands and and groups and singers who are very much a staple of country music, and that's not going to change. But to broaden that base into, like you said, to to get country music not to have a bad rap, I mean, that would be a good thing. And, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter what genre it is. A a great song is a great song. And that's what first drew me to country music, really, is were were the songs. Because they're songs about real people, real life, real things, songs that I could relate to. And uh, as a songwriter, I think that's probably why I first fell in love with country music. 
Picking up on what you said about writing songs about real people and what they go through, your first CD, which was called Preface, came out in 2002. And now here you are, seven years later, with your second album. How much has changed for you in terms of uh, the styles of songs that you're writing now? (laughs) A lot. I can't really listen to that record. But (laughs) I think any artist who puts out an indie record and then has several years to grow as an artist is probably... Oh, it cringes a little bit when they hear it again, but, you, you know. Mean, there aren't any songs on that first album that you say, that's eh, pretty good, I'll, I could do that live again, or? Um, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it because I was young, and I wrote all the songs on it, and something I'll always be proud of, but I, I definitely feel just life experiences alone, and growing older and going through different things. Sure. Naturally, as a songwriter, uh, you're what you're writing about is going to change. And things have changed in your personal life in seven years. I mean, you're married now. Yes, that's, I am. That's a big thing for you. So congratulations. Thank you. And you've been married for little, has uh, it been a year or, or a lot less than a year? It's been a year and a half. And how's married life treating you? <laughs> Good. He's, uh, he's in my band, so it's, it's convenient <laughs> we get to uh, travel and play music yeah, That's together. what I was going to ask you. So are you going to tour with this album? Yes, absolutely. Right now I'm doing radio touring Mm -hmm. for the single and going to stations and thanking them for their support. Country Radio really got behind the single right off the bat, and that's always amazing. So right now I'm doing the the radio show circuit, but um, the hope eventually is is yes to to, uh, ultimately love to do is get an opening spot on someone else's tour Mm -hmm. because... I've been in in a spot where I've been a headliner and had to play a 75-minute set for people who knew one song. So I don't want to get to that too early. I'd rather uh, open for people for a while. Really? Okay. But I guess having your husband in the band with you and on the road, I guess touring won't be so lonely anymore. Cause you can oh, be it's kind never of good... lonely. And, well, it seems like... you know, who, whoever is in, ends up being in your band and crew and uh-huh. whoever you're touring with, they all become family. It's they really do. I've interviewed a, a number of uh, musicians, and some have that reaction, what you just said, mm-hmm. and then others say it's like you're in this bubble, and it becomes very lonely because it's planes, trains, buses, hotels, sound check, show, and then you do it all over again. And then that right. that kind of machine, it just gets so overwhelming at times. It is definitely monotonous, and if you're in that headspace, you can sort of feel like you're in a bubble, but... If you're surrounded by great people, it just sort of makes it like a road trip with your family. <laughs> I would imagine that as your career progresses and maybe 10 years from now, you, you maybe have a different have a different take of touring, especially if, <laughs> if kids come into, the, in, come into play. Then you're like, I want to be home with the family. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I, got, I got a sampler of songs from the new album, which hasn't come out yet as of this recording. And I'm going to run down the list of the songs. And uh, why don't you give me a little backstory of each. And we talked a little bit about Boy Like Me, but maybe you could kind of fill it in a little bit. Because I know you you didn't write it. It was actually written by your producer, right? It was. It was written by Jerry Flowers, my producer, who um incredible talent, singer, songwriter, musician. He's actually Keith Urban's bass player, which is how I originally met him. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he, he was longtime good friends with my husband. Um, so when the records were, were touring with Keith, uh, that's when Jerry and I first met and started writing together, long before we ever knew he was going to produce. And it was during that period that he played Boy Like Me 
for me, and I instantly said, Jerry, don't let anyone else get that. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for me. <laughs> and, and, and he did. And he did, and it's done very well and for And he you. did. And and then Keith Urban played guitar on it. Just... Oh, is he the one that's uh, playing sort of the, the lead? Does he do the lead break on that, or is that someone mm-hmm. else? Oh, wow, yeah. okay. Good yep. for Keith. Carry on top. <laughs> And uh, what about A Woman Needs, the title track from the album? A Woman Needs is probably one of my favorites because it's about being a woman. And my favorite lyric from the song is, a woman needs a few second chances. And men or women, it can be true. But for me in my life, I know that it's taken a few second chances mm-hmm. to find the right path and, and find find the right place in my life where I'm at peace and happy and I think it's something that a lot of people can relate to, so it's a special song for me. This is sort of signal the keynote for your where you are in your life right now? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. about letting go letting go um is interesting all the other songs on the record are newer songs and uh, that's that's an oldie that that's about four years old michelle and i had made our record and then she got pregnant so we mm-hmm. decided to wait uh to put it out and and promote it until after she had her baby and so during that time i was in nashville just doing a lot of writing and working towards eventually a solo project. Because it takes um, time for these songs to percolate. They just don't happen overnight. Some do, and that's like, oh, great. But then there's others. Right, really, exactly. Some you really so, have to work at. Yeah. Yeah. So I have actually kind of forgotten about it, but that's the great thing about having A&R at your record label when you're going in to make a record because they went through my entire back catalog and pulled that song out and said, Jess, you have to cut this one. And I'm so glad I did because I love the way it turned out. My phone rings and my machine picks up. How many times is that today? That you've called me just to say hello. And I say, I'm doing okay. Don't I give in Now I won't 
And then Love Letter. This was actually the one that I liked the most out of the sampler. Well, Boy Like Me was instantly likable, but Love Letter I really, really just kind of glommed onto and thought, there's a song. (laughs) And I played (laughs) it for... it's very, very close to my heart. It's completely autobiographical and very special. And I, I played it for a number of people at work. Love Letter sticks out to them. They're like, oh, I like that song. That's a good one. I think a lot of people can relate to it in the sense of, be it family or significant others, I think people are so busy these days that sometimes they forget to stop and and let the people in their life know how much they mean to them, and that's really what that song's all about. I beg your mailbox is empty, just bills in a magazine, and I know that it's been ages. Since you've heard from me I've been out here on this highway Running circles in my mind And I always think of writing But I never find the time I could fill a hundred pages With the ways my heart beats true People don't seem to write love letters Like they used to do So this might be surprising Why was the Wreckers project put on hold? It seemed like at the time when you and Michelle got together to form this duo, Mm -hmm. that she had kind of grown disenchanted with the rock world, the world of rock music, where she had really made her her mark and was trying to do something different. And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, it looks like the Wreckers is going to be this sort of long-term thing. It had just sort of come to a point where it's like, well, maybe we should just give it a rest or what? We really didn't put a timetable on it how it came together i did back up for her on one tour Mm -hmm. and we'd been friends for many years at this point and and had been writing together for many years and it was that last tour before we formed the records where i was singing back up and we started playing some of our songs and they were getting a really good response and it was at that point that I was actually about to sign a deal in Nashville and, and start working on a solo record. And Michelle just sort of called me up and said, Jess, we have these songs that we've written together. It's a really special thing. And the way our voices mesh together, people always told us we sounded a lot like sisters, like, like sibling harmony. Right. Um, right. So I said, you know what? You're right. Let's do it while we can. And so really, it was sort of a selfish thing for us, just <laughs> because we, it was something we really wanted to do at the time, and yeah. had no idea the success that would come with it, and we'll always cherish that, and it was an amazing ride, it was, it was a whirlwind. You're not sure that you love me, but you're not sure enough to let me go. Baby, it ain't fair, you know, to just keep me hanging around, you say you don't want to hurt me don't want to see my tears so why are you still standing here just watching me drown and it's all right yeah i'll be fine don't worry about this heart of mine just take your love and hit the road there's nothing you can do or say you're gonna break my heart anyway so just 
to make our second record, we were sort of writing in different directions, mm -hmm. and being artists, we didn't want to force another records album just to capitalize on the success of what we had going, because we both are artists at heart, and the music comes first for us, so we didn't want to fake anything, because Stand Still Look Pretty is such a real and raw record, and we just decided to be true to ourselves, and go back to being solo artists and sort of feel like the records are there should we uh, want to come back to it someday. Well, there you go. You left the door open. I think that a lot of people, when they read something like a band is on hiatus, they want to know there must be drama about that. Something happened. Something, oh, yeah. You know, and well, so I'm people always try to create drama. <laughs> so I'm glad you actually had a chance to explain how you had come to just an agreement organically because it was two different styles of songwriting that you were approaching. You were going yeah. in one direction and she was going in another. And it's not like, I just can't work with you anymore. You know, you know right. we're done. <laughs> no, nope, it was about the music for us. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm really proud that we were bold enough to not, like I said, just capitalize on mm -hmm. the success of what was going on and be true to ourselves as artists. Now, being a successful singer-songwriter, you have fans that I'm sure get all gaga when they meet you. Now, <laughs> who would turn you into a total fangirl if you had a chance to meet them? Oh, I've already been there. <laughs> so who was it? Uh, uh, Reba McIntyre was my first concert uh -huh. and probably one of the first times I decided I want to do that when I grow up <laughs> and um, we happened to run into each other backstage at the ACM Awards one year she was hosting and Michelle and I were presenting and she walked by us and said hi and she grabbed my shoulders and she said you look so beautiful and I just sort of had my stuttering uh, oh thank, thank you so do you <laughs> you know what do you say to that because one of my idols so <laughs> It just that just was probably a just moment. <laughs> caught you off guard, did she? She what? <laughs> she caught you off guard, I guess. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you don't expect one of your idols to come up to you randomly and tell you that you look beautiful. Exactly. And then anyone else that you've had a chance to meet that you're all like, oh my gosh, I've been a fan of yours yeah. since. Winona was another one that I got extremely tongue tied around, and luckily I had Michelle there at that point to uh, <laughs> kind of take over for me and speak because I really couldn't get words out. So now, <laughs> when you two, two of my heroes growing up, so. now when you meet fans who get starstruck when they see you, you can kind of empathize. You say, "I've been there." Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I do everything I can to diffuse it and give them a big hug and a pat on the shoulder and say, hey, it's cool. I'm just a real person. I'm just a normal person. <laughs> Great. Well, Jessica, best of luck on the album when it comes out. What's the release date? We don't have an exact release date yet, but it will absolutely be this summer, and we're thinking July. Okay. All right. Jessica Harp, her new album is called A Woman Needs, and as you heard, it may come out uh, in July, maybe a little earlier. And she is a delight. Thank you so much for chatting with me on the Pop Dose interview, Jessica. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That your box is empty, just feels in a magazine. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I'll be back soon with another episode right here on the Planet LP Podcast. Take care.